Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving mercies, and we are grateful that you are a God who loves us so much, and that you have created us in such a marvelous way. And as we consider this topic, the failure of lifestyle, we ask for you to be our teacher, for you to bring thoughts and ideas home to our hearts that, well, Lord, that we may make a change, transformation, that we may not stay... Uh, in the usual place, but we may come out of our comfort zones and, and enter into a different life. This we need, and this we ask for, and this we thank you for giving us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at the failure of lifestyle. <clears throat> yeah, my name is Mark Sandoval. I'm the President and Medical Director at uh, Uchi Pines Institute and the Health Ministries Director for the Gulf States Conference um, and the uh, Founder and Chair of Health by the Book in Trinidad and Tobago and there's a few other things that I have my fingers in Um, and uh, God is good, very good. And uh, we're going to look at the failure of lifestyle. There is a major failure in lifestyle, and so we're going to look at that. This is a a, a continuing education um, opportunity, and so I must tell you that I have no disclosures. Um, And there's some boring objectives that you can look at in your handout, and otherwise we're just going to dive right in. Um, So we have entered into the golden age of lifestyle. It really is. Uh, Since 1983, Dean Ornish, publishing studies that advocate for lifestyle interventions as part of the healthcare system, Um, he's met significant ridicule and resistance along the way, but persevered in his pursuit of integrating lifestyle medicine as as a component of our healthcare system. And now the, De- the Ornish uh, Lifestyle Medicine Program is reimbursable through Medicare and other um, insurance providers. We have Caldwell Esselstyn, who's pushed forward in his own arena, pioneering uh, lifestyle medicine work through the Cleveland Clinic and developing the Cardiovascular Disease Prevention and Reversal Program and showing that clearly lifestyle interventions can reverse even advanced cardiovascular disease. We have that 2011 documentary that just turned this world upside down, Forks Over Knives. Uh, Tremendous interest in the area of lifestyle and plant-based diets. I know of hundreds of people who changed to a plant-based diet because of that documentary. Hundreds, all over the place, that, that, that have done so. My, my personal journey in the change of diet was a little bit before Forks and Knives, but, um, <clears throat> but it was really neat when it came out. And within the last two decades, we've seen the rise of such organiz- organizations as the Plantrition Project and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine with its emphasis on treating the cause. Right, treating the cause. And I just came there. Many of you actually have come right over from the ACLM uh, meeting this year, 15th anniversary. Guess what? 15th anniversary for? Amen. Right, both organizations, um, same age, but ACLM has 1,500 physicians and other healthcare providers uh, that are there at the meeting. Uh, more than that, that are members of the organization. And uh, they're all, oh man, you, you want to feel energy? 
go to the ACLM meetings, I mean, there is all sorts of excitement and energy, and people are just all interested in lifestyle and incorporating this, and some of them are just kind of lost. They're like, well, I want to, but I'm not sure how, and that's why I'm here, but there's all sorts of people that, I mean, it's just, it's energy-packed, especially with the music. Um, (laughs) Those of you that were there know. (laughs) Um, But does lifestyle really treat the cause? Does lifestyle really treat the cause? And is it really the answer that we're looking for? Or is the answer deeper than lifestyle? So let's look at some studies that that show us the treatment effect of certain lifestyle interventions in terms of quality-adjusted life years. Quality-adjusted life years. So uh, what are quality-adjusted life years? Well, it's a measure of health or disease burden that includes the quality and the quantity of life that's lived. So, So it assumes that health is a function of the length of life and the quality of life, the two together, and combines these values into a single index number. So, so how is this calculated? Well, to determine it, you, you, uh, you need to multiply a utility value associated with a given state of health by the number of years that you live in that particular state. Uh, for example, perfect health is considered a, a utility value of one. Death is a utility value of zero, So everything else is somewhere along the spectrum between zero and one. So for instance, if you had a stroke with hemiparesis, you might be at a 0.4, maybe, just depending on how that works out and who's uh, who's determining that. And uh, then when we look at quality-adjusted life years, well, uh, if you lived a whole year with perfect health, then you would have a quality-adjusted life year of one, because you have one year at a utility value of one. So one times one is? One. Very good. All right, simple math. All right, so a year of life lived in a situation where you had a utility value of 0.5. Let's say you're bedridden for some reason for a year, but you lived the whole year that way, then you would have a quality-adjusted life year of 0.5. Right, 0.5 times 1. Or if you had perfect health until you got killed by the vehicle halfway through that year, well, then you would have a quality-adjusted life year of 0.5 because you had perfect health for half a year. So this is how you determine quality-adjusted life years. Now, let's throw that in the context of another scenario. Let's imagine that you have a group of people, and they have a horrible lifestyle, absolutely horrible lifestyle. And uh, they live relatively healthy for the first 20 years of their life. You know, that's the the lease on life that they get. And they have a a utility value of 0.9. So 0.9 over 20 years, and then, boom, they have a heart attack. And their utility value drops to 0.5. And and they live at this level for the next 35 years, uh, well, until they're 35 years of age, and then they have a stroke, at which point it drops down to 0.4, and they remain that way until they're 65 years of age when they die. In this situation, they end up with about 37 and a half quality-adjusted life years. If you take all of the utility values on the side, multiply it by the number of years along the, along the side, there you have 37 and a half quality-adjusted life years. Now, let's add an intervention to this and see what happens. So here we're going to teach them to eat a, uh, a diet that reduces cholesterol and simple carbohydrates and increases fiber. 
So we're going to do a dietary intervention. Now this group lives for 40 years at good health with a utility value of 0.9. Then they have their heart attack and their utility value drops to 0.7. So it didn't drop quite as far when they had their heart attack. And they live in that state until they're 80 years of age. And at 80, boom, they have their stroke, drops their utility value down to 0.5, and they live in that state, or, yep, 0.5, and they live in that state until they're 90 years of age when they finally die. So this second group has a quality-adjusted life year of 69. So what is the treatment effect? Well, the treatment effect is your 69 quality-adjusted life years minus your 37 and a half, and that ends up with a, a treatment uh, value of 31.5, which, by the way, is huge. It's imaginary, but it's huge. It's absolutely huge as far an as, as an intervention is concerned. So this whole red area here on the chart gives you an idea of the, the increase in quality-adjusted life years that you can have with a certain behavior. So le now let's look at some real studies and what range quality-adjusted life years might be in as we get along with our topic. So here's the, the European Perspective in Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition, or EPIC uh, Netherlands study, the EPIC-NL study. And they followed 33,066 people for 14 years and assigned them one point each for four healthy lifestyle factors. So you received one point if you never smoked, if you had a normal body mass index, if you were physically active, and if you had a high adherence to a Mediterranean diet. So those are the four points, four assignments that they gave to individuals. And what they found is that after 14 years, 33,000 people that... Compared to those who had zero points, right? So they weren't doing any, any of those four things. Those who were doing all four, they ended up having four points. They gained an additional 1.75 quality-adjusted life years. Yeah. Okay. So almost two good, healthy years in addition if they were doing that compared to the others. So that's good. It's good. Um, what about smoking cessation? There's a Danish study. They looked at 25-year-olds and calculated their quality-adjusted life expectancy if they had certain lifestyle patterns that were negative. For example, 25-year-olds who were heavy smokers lost 10 to 11 quality-adjusted life years compared to those who never smoked. Men who uh, consumed high alcohol, they lost about 5, and women lost about 3 quality-adjusted life years. Uh, if you were sedentary... Compared to physically active, you lost seven quality-adjusted life years. If you were obese, men lost three and women lost six quality-adjusted life years. Uh, and, and so you see then there's certain benefits associated with particular behavioral patterns, lifestyle interventions that one might enter into. And uh, looking a little bit more at smoking cessation, another study looked at the effect of smoking cessation on quality-adjusted life years and looking at individuals that are older, 65 and older. And what they found is that if you'd never smoked, by the time you got to 65, you had an expected 16.1 years longer to live. Quality-adjusted life years, not just years lived, but healthy years lived, right? Uh, at that point. If you were a former smoker, you only have 12.7. So obviously less if you had smoked in the past. If you're a current smoker, well, you're only expecting about 7.3 quality-adjusted life years. 
uh, at 65. If you began smoking before you were 18, you can only expect six, but if you began smoking after you were 18, you can expect about eight and a half quality-adjusted life years. And if you smoke less than a pack a day, you can expect about 8.1 quality-adjusted life years, but if you smoke more than a pack a day, only about 6.6. And finally, if you quit, you can gain potentially an additional 5.4 quality-adjusted life years. So, well, it's about what we would expect. The more you smoke, the earlier you start, the worse it is. And the research bears out that fact. You know, we look at it, you know, we look at it and go, well, duh. But, you know, the research now tells us, well, duh. <laughs> right? <clears throat> it's what we knew. So <clears throat> let's look at two different treatment options. In this example, you can see we've got two treatments. We've got treatment A and treatment B. It's obvious that treatment B is going to give you more quality-adjusted life years. Right? Significantly more. That red section on the, on the chart is, is much bigger in treatment B. And if you are looking at a particular condition or a life of your patient and you have the option of choice of treatment A or treatment B, which one are you going to choose? Well, obviously, you're going to che- tre- choose treatment B because that's going to give you the greatest benefit. But what if it wasn't just treatment A and treatment B? What if there was treatment C? And treatment C will give you the same benefits as treatment B, but it will also give you eternal life with perfect health. Now, which treatment would you choose? A, B, or C? Well, that's right, duh. You would choose treatment C, of course, because it's infinitely better than treatment A or treatment B. So anything that you can do treatment-wise that will only impact that which is temporal is infinitely less effective than the smallest thing that you can do that will impact that which is eternal. Let me repeat that. Anything that you do that is temporal is infinitely less effective than the smallest thing that you can do that is eternal. Because the eternal will have an everlasting eternal effect. And so we must take that into consideration when we are thinking of any treatment modality, anything that we are involved in. Any intervention that can affect eternity infinitely more potent than the greatest intervention that can merely affect this temporal life. And so, as wise practitioners, we must understand the need to influence eternal interests. We've got to see that. We have to. And we must be wise in applying modalities that impact those eternal interests. And if we fail to impact eternity, we fail of any real significance or success in our profession because we are choosing something that is infinitely less than what is available, than what is an option, right? So we've got to see this, got to see this, got to go there. So uh, some of us have been trained to be afraid of addressing spiritual issues with our patients, it's part of our training. 
So let me remind you that 70.6% of Americans are Christian. So the vast majority of patients coming through your practice, they are Christian. 22.8% are unaffiliated. Uh, Only 7.1% are avowed atheists or agnostics. It's a very low percentage, but uh, sometimes vocal. 88% of people believe in God, whether they're Christian or not. 77% believe that religion is important to them. 71% pray at least on a weekly basis. And 35% have read scripture at least once a week. So, So we find in our American population that our patients are predominantly religious. They are, whether they acknowledge it or not, spiritual. (laughs) Right? It's... That's not, I mean, it's, it's like, are you a human or are you not? Well, yes, you are human. Well, therefore, you're spiritual. It just goes along with it. But many of them are religious, and they acknowledge that. But what about physicians and their attitudes towards spirituality and religion and, and so on when it comes to a practice? Well, physicians, when it comes to addressing spirituality, 91%, thankfully, think it's okay to address spiritual issues when a patient brings it up. But that means that there's 9% that believes it's not okay to address spiritual issues even when the patient says, Doc, please, I want to talk about this. 9% of uh, of physicians out there are going to say, ah, mm, sorry, not appropriate. Um, 45% believe that it's not okay for the physician to bring up spiritual issues. Almost half. It's not okay for you as a, as a provider to bring up spiritual issues. Part of it is because of our training. And I, I talked about this in the last session. Ethics. We've been taught ethics that, that there's such a gap between power between the patient and the provider that if the provider even mentions spiritual issues or brings up spiritual issues, it's coercion. Oh, really? Hmm. Influence, for sure. Coercion? No. No. 14% of physicians believe that it is never okay to talk about one's own religious beliefs with patients. Never. Even when the patient says, come on, doc, please. I want to know what you believe. Never. Okay. 53% believe that it's only okay to pray with patients when the patient requests. And 17% believe that it's never okay to pray with patients. Never. So... You see there's a disparity between the patients and the providers. There's a disparity between the two. And the providers are the ones that are more irreligious and not interested and so on and so forth, and the patients are the ones that are really wanting it. So there's that disparity there. What if we only treat the body? What if our practice is dealing with Allergies and anesthesia and autoimmune conditions and diabetes and hypertension and high cholesterol and and so on and so forth. What, What if that is our practice? Those are the things we focus on. Those are the things we look at. That's the stuff we deal with from day to day and so on. If that is our object, if that is our aim, if that is our purpose, then we're going to be monkeying around between A and B. 
and we're never going to go to sea. And sea will slip away from us into eternity (laughs) if we don't address the whole person and their real need. Well, we have the example of Jesus, (laughs) Matthew 4, 23. We're all familiar with this, I know, but I'm going to read it anyways. Let's read it again. It's good to review God's word. And Jesus went about all Galilee doing what? Teaching Teaching in their synagogues. And what? Preaching Preaching the gospel of the kingdom and doing what? Healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. It was not a one-sided ministry. It was a complete ministry of teaching and preaching and healing. There was never a divorce between the gospel and his healing work. They they were always integrating. So what about us? Councils on Health, page uh, 544. Christ has given us an example. He was the greatest physician this world ever knew, and yet he combined with his healing work the imparting of soul-saving truth, and thus should our physicians labor. How? Like Jesus did. They are doing the Lord's work when they labor as evangelists. Have you ever thought of your job as an evangelist? Did they they do evangelism class and evangelism training in medical school? Well, I skipped a lot of classes, and that must have been one of the ones that I skipped. (laughs) I seriously did skip a lot of classes, and I think it was a few years after I went through, they finally got the idea, and they started making everybody go to class. And... um, (laughs) This crazy idea that I could learn more just studying on my own than going to class. If I did it over again, I'd go to class. But at least I made it through. Sometimes people ask, well, how did you make it through? I made it through as the top of the bottom third (laughs) of the class. I was the top of the bottom third of the class. I was like 33rd percentile in the class, you know. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, praise God he got me through so he could change me. Um, so, <laughs> thus our physicians should labor. They are doing the Lord's work when they labor as evangelists. I missed that one. I missed that one. Giving instruction as to how the soul may be healed by the Lord Jesus. Every physician. Oh, oh, how many physicians? Most a third of them. Two-thirds? Most? Almost all? Every. Every physician should know how to pray in faith for the sick. Now, it's one thing to pray for the sick. Right? It's, it's, it's one thing to pray for the sick. We can say words. It's easy to say words. Do you know how to pray in faith for the sick? So that when you are done praying, they are believing because they have caught the fever of faith from you. Or is it dry and tasteless and whatever and, and they're just as unbelieving afterwards because it's just a formal thing. It's different to pray and to pray in faith. Right? They're not the same thing. Do you, every physician should know how to pray in faith for the sick as well as to administer the proper treatment. At the same time, he should labor as one of God's ministers to teach repentance and conversion and the salvation of soul and body. 
But if you have not repented, if you have not been converted, if you, if you only have a, a, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, and your soul, and what's that going to do to the soul and the body? It's going to be... Sorry, that's an official term, right? It's not going to work. Such a combination of labor will broaden his experience and greatly enlarge his influence. One thing I know, the greatest work of our physicians is to get access to the people of the world in the right way. The right way. There is a world perishing in sin, and who will take up the work of the cities? The greatest physician is the one who walks in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, it's not an easy pathway. Because it'll cut right across the world and the way the world operates. And guess what? Most of us are operating that way too. So when we follow in his footsteps, it's going to cut right across our way too. What is the physician's first work? The Redeemer expects our physicians to make the saving of souls their first work. Their first work. Not their third work, not their last work, not their their first work. So let's unpackage this a little bit because we need to, we must, we've got to go here. And some of you were in the last session and so we kind of went there together and we'll just go through there again. If the salvation of souls is your, what work? First work, right? Then that's the aim. That's the purpose. That's the reason for your practice is the salvation of souls. And if that is the case, which it is because we're told, this is not just any, God is telling us it's our first work. If that's the case, then how are we going to design a practice so that it meets that first work? How are we going to do that? When you, you know, and and architecture can have a part to play. Just like Mark Finley was talking about yesterday evening. Right? What is that? Thema thema texture or something like that? Anyway, I don't remember the term. A Disney thing. You know, it's... it's, With a theme in mind, you build the whole thing, even the architecture around that theme. So if you were starting a whole new practice, how would you you envision this whole thing setting up? How would the flow be? Where would you put the the waiting room? What would be the seating arrangements be like? What would you have on the walls? What would you have on the tables? How would you have all of this stuff interacting? But it's not just the location and the position and so on and so forth, but what about the people the people that work in the practice, who would you hire to be your staff? Um, nice people that know how to smile and, and interact in a nice, uh, accommodating way with the patients and so on and so forth? Sure. Customer, you know, people that have good customer service, sure. But no, that's not what we need. We need people that have that, yes, but they have to have the gospel experience themselves because they can't give what they don't have. 
And if we have and we hire staff that don't have that personal experience with Christ, that don't have that transformational relationship with him, they can't share it with the people. All they can give them is a theory, but not a reality. And and in our business nowadays, especially as Seventh-day Adventist Christian health workers, our, our business is still... The three angels' messages, right? It's still the three angels' messages. That's still our business. Even as physicians, that's our business. And so if you have individuals that might be a good Christian otherwise but don't have a clue about the three angels' messages and don't have an experience in the three angels' messages, that's not who we want. We must have those that are in a living experience of the message that we're trying to share with the patients because only then can they communicate it to them. And you want the whole team to be on board, not just some. Because your team provides a protecting hedge for the patients. It provides the environment that they walk into. It is important in order to have all of that. Right? So it's, it's you, it's your staff, it's the, 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 even the layout of the, of the place, and, and it's the flow through it, it's the literature that you have, the pictures that you have on the wall, the things that are playing on the TV if you have one, and so on. All of that must be thought out with the purpose of salvation. But another really hard part, and we kind of dug into that in the last session, it's also the schedule. The schedule. The schedule has a significant impact on salvation. Significant. And the enemy knows that. He knows that. He knows if you have too little time, you will take only that which is superficial and accomplish it because you don't have time to go deeper. Right? And so he, 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 he directs the system into overdrive so that there's not the opportunity of addressing spiritual issues, emotional issues, heart issues with patients. Because if you open Pandora's box, you are lost for the rest of the day. Because now you are far behind. Sorry. Sorry. Because now you are far behind the... Um, the, the time and everybody else is running late and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and so, so we just don't go there because we don't have time to go there and so on. But it's our business to go there. It's our purpose to go there. So we've got to consider whether, what we're going to do about that. We have to. We have to consider what we're going to do about that. Are we going to continue on the same way that we have been? Are we going to continue on with the same practice and the same partners and the same whatever and all of that kind of stuff and doing things the same way? Or are we going to step out in the way of God's choosing, the focus being salvation of souls and designing everything in the practice that fits around that? Or if you're a mid-level provider or something like that and you have to be working under somebody else, then finding that one that does. So what's the physician's responsibility? Every medical practitioner, whether he acknowledges it or not, is responsible for the souls as well as the bodies of his patients. The Lord expects of us much more than we often do for him. Every physician should be a devoted, intelligent gospel medical missionary. 
familiar with heaven's remedy for the sin-sick soul as well as with the science of healing bodily disease. We should be as well-versed in dealing with the hurting soul and helping them to heal as we are with our physical treatments of whatever conditions that we're dealing with and whatever specialty that we're in. I should be able to as easily insert a chest tube And I should as easily be able to insert the gospel for a patient. Right? And to show them uh, a, a, the solution right, to their hurts, to their heart issues. Coming as he does in daily contact with disease and death, his mind should be filled with the knowledge of the scriptures. That from this treasure house he may draw words of consolation and hope and drop them as good seed into hearts ready to receive them. He should encourage the dying to trust in Christ as the sin-pardoning Savior and should prepare them to meet their Lord in peace. How many patients have you had that slipped through your hands without preparing them to meet their Lord in peace? Well, in some situations, it's difficult, um, <laughs> especially when you're dealing with trauma and so on and so forth. And I've had plenty of patients that have died in my hands while I'm trying to keep them alive. Uh, not in lifestyle, in ER. <laughs> they don't die as often in lifestyle. Um, but, uh, but yeah, in ER, and you know, I mean, I, it, it's, it's hard, you know, I'm sure all of us has been there to one degree or another. I've had, I don't know how many patients die in my hands while I'm trying to save them. But sometimes you get to them just a little bit earlier than that. You know they're circling the drain. You can see it, right? You can see it in them. You can see it in the numbers and so on and so forth. They haven't, they haven't, gone, they haven't been flushed down yet. But they're right on the verge, Right? How many of those have we prepared to meet the Lord in peace? I'm not asking that for you to be guilty. I'm just, we need to have honest questions and honest answers with ourselves in regards to our practice. Are we following the great master in his work or are we not? We've got to look at it. We've got to see it. We've got to see whether we're doing that. Are we doing an American College of Lifestyle Medicine lifestyle intervention but not really getting to salvation, right? Are we new stars without new starts? <laughs> you know, without trust in God or, or, or what? How, how is it going with us? Physicians need a double portion of religion. Of men in any calling, physicians are most in need of clearness in mind. Purity of spirit. Oh, how do you get purity of spirit? Well, you can't have purity of spirit without purity of mind. And you can't have purity of mind without purity of eyes and ears and so on and so forth. So, so that means we gotta, we got to watch what we're watching. we got to listen to what we're listening to. We've got to pay attention to the avenues of the soul and those things that are coming in. We can't just be playing around with the trash, trouble, and trivia of the world. We can't just be watching everything that Hollywood puts out and so on and so forth and, and have purity of spirit. It cannot work. So it has to enter into every area of our lives. I can ask the question, let's imagine that in the last seven days, 
there is this special equipment that was following around, following you around everywhere. And this special equipment, it's like, you know, it's like a drone, and it sees where you're going, and it's got video of this and that, and it even has special equipment so it can tell what you're looking at, where your, you know, where your vision is is at, and so on and so forth, and it can tell what you're thinking, and it records it all. And, uh, and I have the file on my computer, and we can just hit play. We can see the last seven days. Anybody here would pay me not to play that video? <laughs> might pay me a whole lot of money not to play that video, right? Some might be comfortable with it. Some might be, okay, well, that's fine. Yeah, well, no, I'm not perfect, and you'll find out that I'm not perfect, but it's, you know, it's not like, oh, I can't believe that. You know? Where are we at? Physicians need a double portion of religion, right? We need a clearness of mind, a purity of spirit, a faith which works by love and purifies the soul, that they may make the right impression on all who come within the sphere of their influence. We're told of Jesus, no man spoke as this man spake, because no man lived as this man lived. If you are not living it, you, they, it will not have a, an atmosphere along with it that will be transformational. I was just down in Brazil, and uh, I was... I, I was uh, talking to a young lady, and uh, I, I asked her just a few questions, and she just poof, burst into tears. You know, I love it when that happens. I do. I love it when that happens because I know that we're getting to something of worth, of value. We're getting somewhere with that. And she's crying, and she said, I don't know why I'm crying, and I don't usually cry with anybody, and you just asked like one or two questions, and I'm crying. You know, and I get that a lot from patients and from, you know, and others and whatever. Why? There's an atmosphere. But the atmosphere is not just created with the patient. It's created with the life. It's, you know, it's the time that you spend on your knees. It's the time that you spend with the Lord. It's the time that you spend in his word. It's the time that you spend not with the television, but with the teacher, you know. And, and, and so that makes a right impression upon all who come within the sphere of their influence. A physician should not only give as much physical relief as possible to those who are soon to lie in the grave, but she, he should also relieve their burdened souls, present before them the uplifted Savior, let them behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Those who understand the science of Christianity have a personal religious experience. He who acts as a guardian of the health of the body should have tact to work for the salvation of the soul. That's what we're called to. We must do. Until the Savior is indeed the Savior of his own soul, the physician will not know how to respond to the question, what shall I do to be saved? So, so we must spend that time with the Lord. We must enter into that experience with him. We must be transformed by the grace of God that we have that living experience ourselves. You can't give what you don't have. Through the efforts of a Christian physician, the accumulated light of the past and present is to produce its effect. Not only is the physician to give instruction from the Word of God, that's part of it. And if you don't know the Word of God, you can't give instruction in it. So we must know it before we can instruct it, but that's part of it. Line upon line, precept upon precept. He is to moisten this instruction with his tears and make it strong with his prayers that souls may be saved from death. When's the last time you cried for your patients? 
right? When, when's the last time that, 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 that their situation, that their desperation, that their, that their lostness, <laughs> that a word, anyways, um, <clears throat> that, that that just brought you to tears and you cried to the Lord for them, that he might save them somehow. And if you might be a medium of that salvation, God, let it be me, Right? When you have, when you have that and, and, and you cry over your patience, you can't just then skim over things. You can't help but dig. You've got to get to the heart. You're concerned about them and their lives and what they need and, 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 and what they really need is eternity, not this temporal stuff. So when you cry for them, you've got to go there. And, and we have such a privilege, such a privilege. Not even the minister has the privilege of the physician. Right? The physician who ministers in the homes of, the, of sick people, watching at their bedside of the sick, relieving their distress, bringing them back from the borders of the grave, speaking hope to the dying, wins a place in their confidence and affection such as is granted a few others. Not even the ministers of the gospel are committed with possibilities so great as an influ- and an influence so far-reaching. Right. Yeah. And, and the enemy knows this, and so he must try to divorce the gospel from our work because he knows that we are the most effective agents that God can use. And so he must take away the tools of our agency so that we can continue doing the work and never accomplish the purpose. That's the danger. That's the reality. Oh God, help us. So what are some signs of poor spiritual health? You have a patient that's coming in, they're, they're, they're struggling, you know, what's going on that can give you an idea that things are not going on spiritually pretty well. Well, they get frustrated, right? And maybe frequently. Uh, they might be anger, angry. They might be bitter. Uh, they have guilt that they're dealing with, maybe. They, they've got some self-hatred. Maybe you pick up a few phrases here and there. I'm not worthy of, or I don't deserve, or, or something. Once you hear any of those phrases, you know, here we are. Right? What's going on? They have a low self-value. Uh, there might be jealousy or suspicion that's going on. There might be addictions that they're dealing with. They, they've got anxiety or depression. They're, they're, they're caught in the cycle of self-pity. And, you know, it's navel-gazing. It's like, oh, poor me, poor me, poor me. You know, of course, you know the phrase that goes along after that. Poor me, poor me, poor me, another drink, right? Um, so self-pity usually leads to then the addictions and, and trying to get out of that. Selfishness, discontent, impatience, hopelessness, right? All of these things give you an idea that, oh, spiritually things are not going well. They're, they're just not doing well. Even though they might have a smile on their face, but you hear some of these comments that have come out and you go, oh, radar's up. There's a problem here, right? There's an issue. Um, what are some signs of good spiritual health? Because it's out there, rarely. So they're joyful. They're patient. You know, you get to them an hour later and they're like, it's okay, doc, it's not a problem. Um, They're content with what they have, even though they might not have much. They're hopeful and they're trusting in others. They're at peace. 
regardless of what's going on around them. They're connected to others. There's significance in their life. They, their understanding of others and their situations, and they're helpful. They're, right? these, are, these are signs that they're doing well. Right? Things are going well spiritually. Um, but it's like with all of them. If they're all there, they're doing well. If you only have a few components, well, they might not be doing so well. So what's, if we're looking at spiritual care and spiritual care of our patients, then we can look at a few different things. One is we can look at a hopeful approach uh, to spiritual care. And so we're going to use the acronym HOPE, H-O-P-E. H has to do with hope, all right? So that's what we're talking about first. And, and so we can ask them, what gives you hope, right? What are you hoping? What, what's there that's there? What gives you meaning in life? Right? Why do you live? What keeps you going? What comforts you in difficult circumstances or situations? What is it that you latch on to? Right? Um, and what gives you strength to keep going? Because, you know, there's others that have given up by now, but you're still going. Why are you still going? What is it that's doing that for you? What gives you peace? Right? What makes you calm when, when things are chaotic? And, and, and what, what gives you love and, and connection, right? So we can ask all these questions. We can, we can enter into that hope, that personal spirituality. And by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my email address at the end. So if anybody wants the slides, just email me and I can email them to you. Um, and uh, so that you can have all this as well. Um, so we've got H, hope. O is for organized religion. So this is where, you know... We're getting to the churchy stuff. So do you belong to a faith group? It's, you know, simple question. Usually on a questionnaire somewhere. Uh, how often do you attend religious services? Does that have anything to do with anything? <sighs> Absolutely. The nurse's health study just was, you know, looking at that and the, the differences in attendance of religious services. And, and the, the, the more often you go to church, the less often you die from everything. So my, my, uh, my takeaway point from that study was, just stay at church. <laughs> You'll never die. <laughs> right? Seems to be the trend. Uh, so do you feel connected with uh, other members of your faith group? So you might belong to a faith group. You might go to religious services, but you might still feel alone and, and not connected. You know, it might be a, a big mega church or something like that, and you, know, it's, you, you just don't have anybody that really connects with you. That could be a problem. Does your religion positively impact your daily life? And if it does, how? And if it doesn't, that's a problem. It's a problem. Right. So H, hope. O, organized religion. P stands for personal spirituality and practices. Personal spirituality and practices. And a question I like to ask individuals is on a scale of zero to, zero to 100, zero is none at all, 100 is the best that it's ever been in your life, how would you rate your relationship with God right now? Right? Just do it. It's almost like a Likert scale. So you can do a Likert scale for, for their relationship with God. You know? And some of them are like, oh, it's 100. Well, that's great. It's the best that it's ever been. Excellent. Uh, what do you do to foster that relationship? Right? What are the practices that you're involved in, the time that you're spending? The, the, you know, is it prayer? Is it scripture? Is it meditation? Are you going to religious services? What are you doing to foster that relationship? And when was the last time that you were at 100? Because, you know, the scale means 100 was the best that it's ever been, so there's got to be 100 back there somewhere. 
or right now. So when was it, and what were you doing at the time to make it that way, and what would it take to improve that number now? Most people, when you ask these questions, they will give you the answers. Right? They'll give you the answers because they know. Rarely do they not give you the answers. Right? And then it's a time of working with them and educating and, and encouraging them along and coaching them and so on. But most of them will give you, give you the answers. And then E, what are the effects on medical care? Because there can be. <laughs> you know. So uh, how do your beliefs impact your health? Uh, do they prevent you from accepting some forms of medical care? Like blood transfusions or vaccinations or life support or, you know, what are those beliefs doing in relation to your, your health care? And how would you like your spiritual needs addressed during your medical visits? So just being open and, and, and upfront with them about it. Everybody's got spiritual needs. So how would you like them to be addressed when, uh, when we work together? And all of this can be done in a questionnaire if you don't have as much time and you can breeze through it and see what their answers are and see kind of where they're at. Or it can be done in a face-to-face. Face-to-face is much more productive. It's much more time-consuming But when it comes to eternity, face-to-face is much more productive. It's much more effective. And then what are some principles of spiritual care? Well, one, you need to maintain an active devotional life yourself. You can't give what you don't have. You've got to foster that relationship with God yourself. You've got to have that personal thing going on. And then ask the Lord to send you patients who need him and who will be open to hearing about him. God will make divine appointments. He's all about divine appointments. And I am just waiting for heaven one day when I can look and I can see all these rewind tapes about the angels and how they did this and how they can, you know, somebody's driving here and somebody's driving there and they make this one stop so this one goes through and this one over here and then this interaction on that side and how they all actually got everything to come together so that boom there's the interaction right i mean heaven's all busy trying to make all this stuff happen pray about it recognize that nobody who comes to your practice is by accident they didn't fall into your practice they're there on purpose right yeah well if they did they'd probably sue you but um so before and while you're seeing the patient pray You know what? I found out I can pray and I can talk at the same time. I can talk with the patient and I can have a conversation and at the same time I can be praying and going, all right, Lord, um, I don't have a clue of what's going on right now. I need you to help me. (laughs) Right? SOS. (laughs) Lord, help me out with this one. I'm not sure what their issue is. I can tell that there's an issue. It's very clear. But I don't know what it is, and I'm not sure exactly how to get there. And so, Lord, I need you to help me right now to ask the right question, to say the right thing, to whatever, or just let it come bursting out so I can see it. I'm dull right now, so, Lord, make it really obvious for my dull mind so that I can see it. And God answers those prayers. Ask the patient, would it be helpful for you if I prayed with you before we begin? And if they say yes, then at the end you can say, well, let's pray before you go. Just make a sandwich of prayer. Prayer at the beginning, pray at the end. Rarely will they say no. Sometimes they do, but rarely. So look for the underlying reasons why they're sick and coming to you. The physical issues are just the effect. It's just the effect. There's a cause. And the cause 
almost all the time is an emotional or spiritual issue. So recognize that and go looking for it. Ask questions to find out what's the underlying emotional and spiritual issues. Address those underlying emotional and spiritual issues, and you're probably asking, oh, wow, how do I do that? Well, it took me years of praying while I'm with a patient and saying, Lord, I don't have a clue of what I'm doing. You've got to teach me. And God gives me something in that, in that interaction. And then I'm praying in another interaction and I'm praying and I'm asking, Lord, you've got to help me with this one. And he gives me something in that one. And he gives me something in this one. And he gives me something in that one. And then somebody comes back that has the same issue as that one. And now I've got the key for it already. And then, and then so on and so forth. And so the Lord has taught me over the last seven years or so how to counsel with individuals, find out what the issues are, and then help them resolve it. It's not because I've learned it in class or anything like that. The Lord has taught me while I'm dealing with individuals and praying to them. And so be a conduit of God's love to them. I don't have time to tell you Steve's story, but, um, well, uh, he was converted. <laughs> <laughs> He was converted before he died of renal cell carcinoma, metastatic. Um, After his wife had been after him, she was Adventist, he was Catholic. Uh, She had been trying to work on him for years, years, decades. And uh, after he came and and saw things from a Christian physician's perspective, and we prayed with him and we worked with him and so on, he finally surrendered his heart to Christ, went home, studied with her pastor, was baptized about two months before he passed away. Praise God. Right? Lifestyle is becoming very popular. And I'm happy for that. Because I work in a lifestyle center. I'm a lifestyle physician. I do lifestyle full time. But in the application of lifestyle interventions, regardless of how good they are in the terms of quality adjusted life years, if we don't impact eternity, it is worthless. It's meaningless, right? And that is the failure of lifestyle. That is the failure of lifestyle, is that lifestyle is focusing on the temporal and they're leaving out the eternal. And those of you that were at ACLM and listening to the messages and so on and so forth, oh, 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 oh. And some of those presentations got so close and then went down a different pathway. Yeah. So we can't do that. We've got to be doing differently. If you're looking for more resources that you can use in counseling with your patients and helping them to, to see and understand their spiritual issues and to, and to look at resolving those and, and so on and so forth, um, I have a biased suggestion. It, happened to be, um, <clears throat> it happens to be a book uh, about healing from disease, depression, and damaged relationships. And it, and it gives a lot of... Um, what should I say? It gives a lot of analogies. It gives a lot of uh, concepts that one can use with a patient, whether they are Christian or whether they're not, um, in order to help them to see their need and to see the love of God and to, uh, and to help them in that walk and that practice. And that's part of what I've been learning over the last number of years in regards to providing that spiritual care for patients. Um, and so it's The Law of Life by Mark Sandoval. It's available on Amazon. Um, for anyone who wants. And also, if you're interested in more lifestyle resources, then Yuchi Pines Institute has a, has a website. 
at uchipines.org, uh, and on there there is a section called Counseling Sheets. We have over 500 different counseling sheets for various different conditions that you can look up with natural remedies and lifestyle interventions for those. And then we also have a YouTube channel that has hundreds of hours of uh, video on a whole ton of different topics, and uh, so you can look that up as well. And if you want the slides or any other things, then my email address is right there, uh, msandoval at uchipines.org, and uh, you can get a hold of me. I need to pray because I'm taking up somebody else's time, and we need to switch. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundant blessings and your great mercies. Thank you that you're a God who knows better than we do. And Lord, we've been challenged. We have been. And each of us must answer for ourselves the question, will we follow you all the way? And what does that look like? We don't know. But we know who's there. And we want to be with you and like you. And so, Lord, may we, may we integrate into our practices, may we transform our practices, may we design our practices with eternity in view that the salvation of souls may truly be our first work. And we follow in the pathway of our Savior, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.